Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. Hi, Happy winter. Happy late winter. Oh, yes. It's been quite cold. Yeah, I have, we have so much snow. I don't think the flowers will ever peak out until July. They're going to have to like, <laughs> bust through some glaciers before they're going to be seen. Um, so let's talk. So while we're waiting for that to melt, let's talk about breastfeeding. Um, so I have an article that I thought was interesting, um, which is entitled um, Tandem Breastfeeding, a Descriptive Analysis of the Nutritional Value of Milk When Feeding a Younger and Older Child. And this was done in Poland. Um, it was um, published in the Nutrients Journal 2021, just this year in January. And uh, I would just say the Nutrients Journal is really nice because they have it's free access and they just have a lot of articles on breastfeeding on the science of breast milk. So I encourage anyone who's looking for something to talk about in a journal club or something to check them out. I'm, I have no financial interest, but um, it's a nice journal. Anyway, um, the researchers um, start by saying that tandem breastfeeding is really not very common in Europe or in the United States. But I would say personally that I, I see, have been seeing it more and more over the years, um, especially for families who um, have kind of these short windows for having more kids. Like they start having kids at like 32 and they want to get pregnant pretty quickly and have short child spacing, um, they'll um, tandem nurse. Um, they also state that um, some women, the reason they do, I think the reason they did this study is because some women are told that their milk turns to water after a year, which is really, have you ever, I've heard this like, oh, your milk is not even any good after a year. I've heard that for so many years. I don't know if that's still going around, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard people say that they don't think that it's valuable, but then, you know, we're like, no. <laughs> Yeah, where does that come from? Where does that come? I mean, I don't understand where that comes from. Like, why would our bodies just like spill water like a fountain out of our breasts? <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. Why would we do that? Um, I, I trust, I trust um, he, the human body to some degree. Um, but in fact, I mean, I'm going to say that human milk is amazing. We know that it's higher in fat and energy compared to mature milk in the first year. And when the volume drops below 300 ml a day, the protein goes up by 20%. And so, you know, I, I liken this to the idea that when, a when like the first year, all the fluid needs to come from breast milk, right? But then after a year, we feel that the, that the child is safe to, you know, grab that glass of water and drink, you know, from wherever. And so they don't need free water to be available in mom's breast anymore. So what they need though, is they need that, you know, highly dense nutrition source, like carrying nuts and seeds in your pocket when you're hiking kind of thing. <laughs> and so that's the way I look at it. It's more like you're carrying like, um, like super juice uh, for babies who just need like a little zip here and there. They don't need all the water. Um, 
So we know that when breast, so the other thing is that we know when breastfeeding women become pregnant, their milk production really drops. Um, and sometimes, you know, babies or toddlers will stop nursing because there's not as much milk, they get mad, um, or mom has so much pain, she kicks the kids off the breast. Um, so the goal of this study, though, was to describe the composition of milk in cases of tandem nursing. So where uh, the toddler continued, the, the first child continued to nurse through the pregnancy, and then mom is nursing both the older child and the baby. And so um, they also mentioned that colostrum of the mothers who are breastfeeding during pregnancy is like anyone else's colostrum. So we know that by the third trimester, um, the, um, the glandular tissue is changed such that it is producing colostrum so that newborn has colostrum, even though the toddler has been nursing. So the researchers took milk from 13 tandem breastfeeding mothers in Warsaw, Poland, and they asked the mothers for five or 10, anywhere between five and 10 ml before and after feeding um, every six hours for 24 hours. And then they did this once a month. And they measured the macronutrients, which are the fat, protein, and carbs, and calories um, before uh, weaning and then after weaning the toddler to see if the milk changed. So um, what's really interesting here is that um, first, before they weaned, when they were tandem nursing, the fat was 4.2 grams. And then after weaning the toddler, and then going back to just nursing the infant, the fat reduced to 3.4 grams per 100 ml. So it was, two, it was two, like two, almost 25% higher in fat when the toddler was nursing. And then the protein also went down slightly from 1.1 gram per 100 milliliters to 0 0.9. And um, the calories overall dropped from 72 to 63 calories per 100 ml. Uh, the carbs stayed about the same. So it's interesting because it's like, you know, what drives that change in breast milk after a year? Is it the fact that there is a toddler or is it the fact that it's just, an, it's just a time-based process that when you're a year postpartum, this is what your milk looks like. But based on this, it seems like when the toddler is no longer feeding, then the milk reverts to just feeding the infant. So then the question is, what's going on? <laughs> Ask Laura Hernandez. I mean, that just really um, makes me think of that uh, comparative lactation lecture and like the the kangaroo that has the, you know, two baby joeys latched on and they're getting different milks for their different ages. It's so cool. But the thing about that is that the joeys stay with their one teat and then they have their one like glandular set of tissue that's specific for their needs, right? And I would imagine that would happen if mom who's tandem nursing is nursing the toddler on one breast and the infant on the other. But most of my patients who tandem nurse don't do that, right? They, yeah. nurse, the they nurse the baby first and then the toddler gets the leftovers. And so, um, I don't yeah. know, it seems weird. The Sorry. other thing that, um for those people that did not get to enjoy the um, comparative mammalian lactation lecture was really interesting to me was when she was talking about how our um, milk has about 3% fat and seal milk has about 60% fat. And I was like, so this whole discussion about four milk, kind milk and having more fat, it's like so relative. Exactly, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and deer milk is also high in fat and it's those animals that can just be left. So um, deer 
you know, like here, well, you have deer where you are too, but deer are like the, 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 um, the fawn is just left alone for hours at a time, right? Um, and um, the mother deer is out foraging or whatever, um, but that fawn can be kind of left for a long time because of the high fat milk. Well, and the other thing that goes with that, which I find baffling and really am curious about is that she was talking about the seal would like nurse for three days and go to sea for 16 days and then come back and nurse for three days and then go out to sea. And I'm like, you know, obviously for us with that need for frequent stimulation to keep the prolactin up, to keep our milk supply going, like something else is at play there for them. And what is that? And how can we learn more about us and, you know, helping moms to relactate or other, you know, ways that that could be clinically relevant to us. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of fascinating, but first we learn how to, we have to learn how to swim really well before we actually <laughs> just have something to do with the salt water and the buoyancy or sounds lovely. To me. I'd love to do that experiment down in the Caribbean. Uh -huh. I was going to say up in those Wisconsin lakes, you go right ahead. <laughs> right. No, no, no. <laughs> All right, so my other article is um, entitled The Calming Effect of Maternal Breast Milk Odor in Infant Randomized Controlled Trial. So this was a study that was done in Turkey and it was published in Breastfeeding Medicine in November 2020, volume 15. So the question is, um, does breast milk odor calm babies? Um, they were interested in whether the odor of breast milk might have a calming, a calming effect on pain that occurs with a heel prick. So what they did is they used something called the NIP score. So that's a score of like, a, like the behavioral aspects of agitation. Um, it looks at facial expression, crying, respiratory rate, arm and leg movements, and the state of awakefulness. So they use the NIP score, heart rate, oxygen saturation, and the duration of crying, as well as a salivary cortisol level to measure pain and distress. So they took um, a bunch of newborns, um, 88 newborns, and they randomized them into two groups. And these were term newborns, 38 to 42 weeks. They were at least 20 hours old and everyone nursed at least twice successfully. So they were, these were all newborns that needed to get their heels pricked for the newborn metabolic screening. So what they did is they, um, they first did salivary sampling. Um, so just with a swab, just to get the cortisol level four minutes before they did the heel stick. Then for the heel stick, they took breast milk or formula on this filter paper, about two ml of one or the other. And this filter paper sat about 10, in, 10 centimeters from the noses of the babies. Um, and then the filter paper stayed there until nine minutes after the heel prick. So the filter paper was there. Um, they did the heel prick at least 60 minutes after they last fed. And, um, and then 20 minutes after the heel stick, they did another salivary draw. And what they found is that the babies who were exposed to the breast milk odor had lower NIP scores during and after the heel prick. They had lower heart rates during and, and after the heel prick, and they had a shorter crying duration um, and lower cortisol levels um, after the procedure. But the, but the NIP scores before the heel pricks, as well as the cortisol levels, were similar um, beforehand. Um, and so they found that, so they decided that breast milk odor reduces um, preterm, well, I'm, I'm sorry, reduces, oh no, I'm sorry, 
Um, so they found that this that the odor of the breath smoke made a difference, and they said that this research supports other research that has been done among preterms who have responded to uh, breath smoke odor with less stress to noxious uh, stimuli. So that was actually pretty cool. Um, I well, I'm still trying to visualize like how this filter paper was sitting there because it seems like if the baby is on its back getting the heel prick, then maybe the baby's on their side. So maybe, yeah, maybe the baby's on their side. So I mean, in other words, how do you get the filter paper within the 10 centimeters of the nose? You know what I'm saying? Or maybe they hung it off of the bassinet. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they what? should have included a picture in their <laughs> document. Yes, yes. Maybe they did. I don't remember. I don't think so. But it, that's the curious thing to me. It's like, where exactly do you place the paper to make sure? It seems to me that you could probably just put the breast milk like on a, like, like a swab, like a, like a large, like, you know, one of those uh, large vaginal swabs and then um, just hold it. Someone could just hold it close to their nose the whole time. I don't know. That's how I would design it anyway. But then you need an extra set of hands. All right. I will, I'm now going to talk about um, febrile seizures. Um, I think you have, have you heard about this, that um, breastfeeding seems to be associated with a decreased risk of febrile seizures? Well, you did a lact fact on it. Oh, you're cheating. May oh, of 2020. Yes. And this is a new study. So this I was is like, it sounds so familiar. Did we talk about this before? So then I was like Googling on the side while you were getting oh, ready to go. Like, quiet, though. I know that I read about this. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So here's the thing. The question is why, why does this happen? So febrile seizures are the most common form of seizures in young children occurring in two to 5% of children. Um, and they essentially occur with a fever, right? Um, they're really pretty common. I, as a family doctor, I see them, you see them as a pediatrician. Um, and these occur without having any underlying major issue like meningitis or pneumonia or anything other, anything terrible happening. Um, so usually provoked by infections, fevers, you know, by infection. And of course, the most common uh, reason for fever in this day and age because of all the immunizations is gonna be a virus. So they were wondering, so the authors were interested to find out if breastfeeding would protect from febrile seizures because it protects from infections. And they thought, well, maybe it's because there's reduced risk of even having a fever um, because you know breast milk protects from infection. So they analyzed data among children who were hospitalized at a hospital called Renmin Hospital in Wuhan, China between January 2017 and August 2019. And sadly, we all know where Wuhan is now, right? No, right? <laughs> yeah, as much as I'm sure people are wonderful there, but Wuhan, I mean, it's kind of amazing. They're really on the map. Um, so during that um, interval there, there, during that interval of time from 2017 to 2019, there were 336 children ad admitted to the hospital for febrile seizures. Um, and they were between the ages of six months and 60 months. Um, they report, so, so what's interesting, you know, like in this country, we don't typically hospitalize children for febrile seizures, but I think in other places, um, you know, hospitalizations are much more readily um, done, you know, for various things. 
And maybe maybe they do because um, you know this is maybe this maybe this population isn't immunized as much. You know, we take we make these assumptions now that we don't have to worry about meningitis. Whereas, you know, when I was in my residency, we did assume that there may be meningitis when there was febrile seizures, and oftentimes, you know, they would get the big workup, right? Um, so anyway, among these 336 children, um, 294 were simple febrile seizures and 42 were complex seizures. And so what they did is they, they contacted the parents of each child and gathered all sorts of data like their gestational age at birth, their mode of delivery, their feeding pattern, their history of having a febrile seizure in the past, and whether or not they have a family history of febrile seizures. And they were really most interested in looking at the feeding methods in the last six, for the first six months of life. So they were put into two groups. Either they were in the exclusive breastfeeding group, um, so exclusive breastfeeding for six months, they were in a partially breastfeeding group or a formula-fed group. And then they compared these infants to controls who didn't have febrile seizures, who fit similar demographics and birth histories. So it was a pretty large, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, this is a lot of kids. And what they found is that exclusive breastfeeding for six months was very protective of both simple and complex febrile seizures. There was not um, greater protection of one versus the other. Um, and partial breastfeeding was not protective, although I have to say they didn't define what partial breastfeeding is. So it seems like exclusive breastfeeding is what's you know, really important here. Um, so what's interesting is that this, this is not the first time this has been studied. As you said, you know, I talked about this back last year when an article came out about this. So there was a study that was done in Iran and in Japan. Um, and the Japanese study found a decrease in febrile seizures for the first year among breastfed infants. And, and so there at least one of those previous studies wondered if it was this reduced risk of infection. They weren't able to, quant to quantify this, but here you have these children who, um, you know, they're, I think they're documenting that these kids had infections and they were admitted. Um, so um, what they believe is that it's not, it's not the reduced risk of infection, so to speak. It's actually that um, the breast milk probably plays a role in brain maturity and allows the body to tolerate those fevers better. Um, so they hypothesize that it's the long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids in breast milk and the lactose that promotes growth of white matter matures the myelin and reduces the neuronal excitability in these babies. So. <laughs> that is so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's more to it. I think that this is the study that shows that this is not just because they're just not as sick because now you have babies who clearly have, um, you know, they, they have they had the seizure and now let's look back and look at the feeding history. So that's very Yeah. It makes me also wonder about, you know, older children and adults because febrile seizures are really up to age six, yeah. five, six. And then after that, is there a, you know, protection that goes even longer if you were exclusively breastfed? Yeah. I don't know about No, that. somebody's going to have to study it now. I'm just telling them yes. whoever's out there who really likes studying seizures and breastfeeding, this is this is it. on your to-do list. Yes, absolutely. We do know that, um, I do know that, you know, which is kind of somewhat related, that there's been a fair amount of information in the literature about mothers who have a history of seizure disorder and that their babies have better outcomes if they breastfeed on their medication than if they don't breastfeed because they're worried about having the baby exposed to their seizure medication. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember that. Yeah. 
So do you have something to share today, Dr. Bodnar? I, I do have something that I wanted to mention just briefly, and it was um, about an article that was in um, the December issue 2020 of Breastfeeding Medicine. And it was just a really um, short article on amidastine, which is an antihistamine. It was titled Amidastine During Pregnancy and Lactation, um, Amidastine Levels in Maternal Serum, Cord Blood, Breast Milk, and Neonatal Serum by Junpei. Sato, Nahu, Yakua, and some others. Um, and, and this is a pretty uh, straightforward uh, pharmacokinetic study about this medication, which um, is a second generation antihistamine used for nasal congestion. Um, and it has been used um, for in an eye drop form for quite a while. And if you look in LactMed, um, there's some information on it, um, as well as increase in absorption by sort of blocking your tear duct and dabbing away the excess, which is in there for a lot of eye medications. Um, but it, in the study, it talks about um, transfer across the placenta, as well as um, the amount that's in breast milk and um, in infant serum. And now um, Philip Anderson has added that to LactMed. Since this article came out, I checked it today and these authors were referenced. He is all over it. Yes. Um, but I, when reading this study, noticed that although the authors discussed the rates of this medication tra being transferred in the placenta and breast milk and said, you know, this is to assess the safety of, of this to breastfed infants, they didn't make any comment in the discussion about the potential impact of this antihistamine on production of breast milk. Right. And I think that, you know, that is a topic that is really important when I'm considering medication safety. I think both about the effects of that medication directly on the infant, but also the effects on milk production, because that is an entirely um, separate way that medications can affect the breastfeeding um, relationship. And so I just wanted to go back and review the article that Philip Anderson wrote in Breastfeeding Medicine in the November 2019 um, Breastfeeding Medicine titled Respiratory Drugs in Breastfeeding, where he talked briefly about antihistamines. Um, and I'm just gonna review that. So he wrote, antihistamines are divided into first and second generation agents. In general, the first generation antihistamines cause more drowsiness and have more anticholinergic or drying activity, which go more or less in parallel. The second generation antihistamines are partly defined by their lower anticholinergic and sedating properties and partly by when they were marketed. For example, um, cetirizine, fexofenadine, and loratadine are all considered second generation agents but cetirizine does cause sedation and anticholinergic effects in some patients. The most commonly used antihistamines have some data in breastfeeding. Diphenhydramine, which is over-the-counter Benadryl, um, causes drowsiness in one infant of 12 exposed to diphenhydramine in breast milk in one survey of mothers. Overall, minor adverse reactions were reported in seven infants of 60 women taking an antihistamine alone mostly first generation while nursing. No adverse effects have been reported with non-sedating antihistamines. Anticholinergics can inhibit lactation in animals, apparently by inhibiting growth hormone and oxytocin secretion. 
Anticholinergic drugs can also reduce serum prolactin in non-nursing women. First-generation antihistamines in relatively high doses given by injection decrease basal serum prolactin in non-lactating women and in early postpartum women. It is not clear whether this is caused by their antihistamine effect or anticholinergic effect. Sacculine-induced prolactin secretion is not affected by antihistamine pretreatment of postpartum mothers. Whether lower oral doses of antihistamines or non-sedating antihistamines have the same effect on serum prolactin, or whether the effects on prolactin have any consequences on breastfeeding success have not been studied. Interesting. So I, I don't even think I saw this when it originally came out, but there's this paragraph on antihistamines, and then there's a section on decongestants, which of course includes Sudafed, which um, we've discussed previously, um, can have a significant impact um, acutely reducing milk production. And so I just thought this went a little more in depth into the theoretical risks um, of these agents. And I think that like so many things we talk about, be that, you know, uh, progesterone only contraceptive, there are certain people that are at risk and we don't always know who they are. They're more sensitive. They might already be struggling with the amount of milk they're producing um, and keeping that in mind is important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's interesting about the antihistamine. I remember talking to another pharmacologist a couple of years ago about Benadryl and he said that, you know, there's not a clear um, impact of, of, anti of the anticholinergic effect on milk production, because if you look at like amitriptyline, nortriptyline, trazodone, well, trazodone is more antihistaminic, but like amitriptyline and nortriptyline, they're not really associated with the drop in milk production. And they're super strong anticholinergics. And then trazodone is a very strong antihistamine. That's what really makes people, that's what makes people fall asleep. And that doesn't seem to cause, you know, cause a drop in milk production either. So then the question is, what is it about these antihistamines? Because I definitely do see that when someone's using Benadryl, um, they can, not all the time, but they can notice a gradual drop in production. And in fact, I had someone who was using, um, taking ciproheptidine, um, periactin, you know, ciproheptidine for chronic headaches. Um, so that, that was back in my day, um, back in the early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that was our go-to medicine for headache prevention, other than propanolol, because it works so well. Um, and um, so it's being reused again in our region for chronic headaches. And I had someone who was taking just four milligrams before bed, and uh, she, when she stopped that, her milk production improved. Um, and that's, again, a strong antihistamine. So I think it's, I don't know that we have a really clear understanding, but it's something to definitely you know, pay attention to. And uh, like you said, it may just be variable in terms of people's responses to these drugs. And what you just said reminded me of this. I went to a, I listened in on a Zoom Medicine Grand Rounds yesterday on migraine. Um, and they were talking about calcitonin gene-related peptide and some of these newer medications um, for prevention and abortion of headache that are um, related to this um, peptide that's been implicated in the process. And they were talking about its role in um, vasodilation. Hmm. And I started, and, and it's also expressed peripherally in the body. And I started thinking a little bit about 
the pain of um, sorry, the pain of um, vasospasm. Yeah. And I really am curious now if that plays a role in it. I've had huh. a couple of patients lately that have had some really interesting things, one of whom was this mom who had vasospasm and I gave her nifedipine to treat it. And she said, when I took the nifedipine, my nipples swelled. And I thought, you know, she's having this vasoconstrictive, you know, she's, she mostly pumps and this is preventing that, that vasoconstriction. And so when she's doing the pumping, it's just allowing more and more blood into her nipples and they're swelling up. And she said, at the end of the day, when it's starting to wear off, the nipple swelling goes away and this happens every day. And I had never had a patient tell me that before. I didn't like, I would never have told someone that would be a side effect. You're nodding. So apparently you've had somebody have this. No, it's just, I, I think you said vasoconstriction. They're vasodilating. Yeah. They're vasodilating. Yes. Thank you. Vasodilating. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say. I see a lot of, you know, I, you know, because I'm a family doctor, I use these a lot for like high blood pressure. And I see a lot of side effects from amlodipine, nifedipine, more so um, than like, you know, rapamolar um, or adultizam. But with nifedipine, you know, we see a lot of swelling in the ankles. Um, a lot of flushing of the face. Um, so lots of vasodilatation um, from these meds. So, but I haven't heard about the nipple swelling, but that's really interesting because then you'd think, oh my gosh, take nifedipine and use a different size flange for your pump. Well, yeah, but I mean, the people who I see who are having significant nipple swelling, who are going up and up and up on their pump sizes are in so much pain because yeah. they're getting these micro tears in the skin. And also I had this one gal who had such a swollen nipple. And I mean, I see some crazy pump trauma in yeah. my clinic and she had all of these little blubs and her nipple was just getting bigger and bigger. She was pumping, trying to get the milk out and it wasn't going out the tips of the tube. So it was just going into the, into the nipple and it got bigger and bigger to the point where and it was so tender. I was like, I wonder if this woman has an abscess in her nipple. And I sent her to breast surgery and they um, ultrasounded and they're like, we think she has an abscess in her nipple. And so they took her to the OR and they did a, you know, a small incision. And they were like, no, but they sent a, a section to pathology and they were like inspissated protein in the connective tissue. She had just pumped all this milk into the connective tissue of her nipple. Interesting. So she probably dissected, probably had like just dissected the walls of the ducts or the lactiferous sinuses. And, um, and I wonder, you know, I can imagine how that can happen. Like if you just turn on the pump, like the spectral, that's one thing about the spectra, you know, you turn it on and you're at the setting that you were when you left off. And I think other pumps are like that too, some anyway. And so then you you go from zero to 60 and you can just blast those. You can just, you can cause significant trauma. So that's really interesting case. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, and so yeah, if, the, if it's too large, right? If the shield is too large, you can definitely just get all this, all this damage to the ductal tissue. Yeah. And I've also seen a few people lately that had sort of in the areola where it's normally so soft, these little peas along the duct that were just, you know, dilatations of the milk ducts where they had either been doing such forceful massage 
or, you know, pumping in such a way that they've really done a really amazing trauma. Wow. You have some, you have some nasty stuff going on over there. I mean, these are some high stress Northern Virginian people who are really like, you know, just trying to figure it out. And I like, I used to always say, if I could take the, um, an eraser to the internet, I would go after like thrush is your cause of nipple pain as my first thing. But, um, lately I think some of the information on um, vigorous massage to get your blocked duct open again is also high on my list because people are really hurting themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a downer. (laughs) We do definitely have a a pump, you know, a lot of other countries don't pump like we do. And, and the pumps are just not babies. So no, it's really, it's not as, as Katrina says, it's not physiologic. Yeah, um, exactly. It's really hard on them. And I think there's a lot of uh, people who have headed that route because we have, we've convinced them breast milk's important, but they don't have the support to make it work and they're just doing whatever they can. And yeah. Yeah, lots of trauma out there. We have to really be aware of that. And I encourage anyone who's listening to really get to know pumps, learn how to use them properly so you can teach your patients that. And don't assume if they're just pumping that they're pumping, like really watch them pump. And Oh yeah, people come in all the time using like totally the wrong size and just, you know, they don't, they don't have great instructions that come with them. Exactly, yeah. Anyway. All right. It was fun well, talking to you. Yeah, talking to you, Karen. Take Stay care. warm. Yeah, I'll talk to you next month. Okay, bye. bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.